I want to introduce our next speaker who I'm really thrilled to have speak because when, when Todd and I decide we're going to make this about innovation, so I worked 35 years in arts and met a lot of creative artists and people. I worked in the film industry, met a lot of creative people there. But the most creative person I know is a superintendent of Fullerton School. He <laughs> is. This guy is the most creative person I ever met. He thinks there is no box with him. He's never had a box. If I didn't know better, I would say he was an artist. <laughs> and, art. and he started as a math teacher. Can you believe that? And I've never met anyone more creative and, uh, and also more innovative in what they do than him. And one of the secrets he does is something that I teach you guys all the time about innovation is he gets great models from other places and, and repurposes them, uses them, which is a great way to innovate. It's find other people doing innovative things and steal it. It's really great. <laughs> but when he steals it, he makes it his own. And uh, him and I have stolen a few things together and made them our own. <laughs> uh, when I was and then you said that you served six years in jail. And that was <laughs> that's, that's right. So, no, we've, we've done some amazing programs together, and I would never have thought of them. He was the one who thought of them, and we just made them happen. And, and I am a better, a better person, a better leader, because I met him. So I am thrilled to give you one of my heroes in innovation, Dr. Bob. Well, thanks for the very generous um, introduction. <laughs> Welcome to 501c3BS. I'm your host, Sue Velasco, director of the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton's Mihalo School of Business and Economics. Join me today as we debunk the myths of the social sector. We will cut down the weeds and clear your path for organizational growth. Dr. Robert Plitka, better known as Dr. Bob, is the superintendent of schools for the Fullerton School District and a master of innovative leadership. Fullerton Schools are a multi-award winning innovative district and Apple Distinguished Program with Blue Ribbon Schools, Golden Bell Award winners, California Business for Education Excellence Schools, Title I Academic Achievement Award winners, and California Distinguished Schools. They are one of 102 innovative school districts nationwide set up by Congress and listed in the top five of those districts for which they were honored at the White House. Fullerton Schools have been listed as a top workplace in Orange County. So without further ado, here is Dr. Bob telling us how he makes an innovative workplace. <laughs> uh, we're 14,000 students, about 20, um, 20 schools in our district. And while when you think about like, what does that mean? Well, it means about 15,000 employees. Um, and so um, talk about trying to build innovation. Uh, it starts really with the community of people that you're working with. It's really about the culture. While we could talk about like super high-end tech tools or maybe uh, some, some great data tools, I actually think innovation starts really with building a culture of innovation. And it's really the precursor, the antecedent to innovation is really about a culture of belonging. It's about creating a sense of community um, where people want to take those risks. Um, and we've done some pretty pretty cool things. Um, some of them are just a little bit creative. Some of the things are outside the box and everything kind of in the middle. Um, just to mention a few, one of my favorites is actually the Writers Guild. We pair up students with professional writers and publishers 
and students then work with one um, mentor for about, um, well, usually about a semester, and they get feedback on their work, and then in the end it's published either as some of our children's book, we also do it in that anthology, um, and we bring in professional, uh, other professional writers to speak to our kids, um, and they get a lot of support. And my favorite thing is actually on the final day, so they have a book, we partner up with Barnes and Noble, and Barnes and Noble um, sells the books that the kids um, have put together and published, and they do a book signing. Mm -hmm. You should see these kids light up, signing their name right there. So they're so just very excited. Um, we also do some great partnerships. Um, Festo is a company that uh, works with robotics in the industry. And um, they reached out to us and they said, normally we do things with high schools, but we've heard about your junior highs and what you're doing. And so we want to invest um, $500,000 in, in labs that we typically put in places like Fullerton um, College um, and in high schools. And we're the only junior high um, in all of North America um, that has a, uh, the same equipment that they do and they train um, their professionals with. And we have a great partnership with them. They come out, they provide curriculum, they work with us, mentors from the field working with our kids. FRC, so um, that's the first robotics. It's the international competition that basically usually high school students um, participate in from all over the world. Um, and we're one of the very few in the, all, in the entire world that have junior high students participating in that program. And then this is my favorite. So this is, um, this is a university competition down in uh, UC San Diego. Um, there are 11 universities participating, and there's one junior high. <laughs> and um, we, they have to make uh, driverless vehicles. Um, and these are high speed. These, they go 40, 50, 60 miles an hour in some cases. Um, they have to do all the programming for that. Um, as well as build um, the vehicle as well. And so it was the best second place I've ever had. Um, the kids uh, were actually second um, against the other uh, 11 universities, which so pretty good. In fact, at first, the university students were kind of looking at our kids, like not quite sure what to do. And then they started to do really well, and then they started to gravitate towards our kids. So our kids can do amazing things. We actually underestimate what our kids can do. And so you, you want to innovate, then you, whatever expectations you have for the people that you serve, it's like, you gotta raise those. What can happen? What's possible? Um, and you have to communicate that um, with, your, with your staff and your community. Uh, AP test. So uh, we had 70 kids take AP, um, computer science tests and English tests, and um, this year we had about 36 tests, um, which is a high school, high school level test as well. Uh, we also do a middle college years program. So we partner up with Fullerton College, and our students um, take college classes for credit. Um, and our, one, in one of our first classes, every single student at Fullerton College in their first class either, either got a B or an A, and that's, they teach it, that's from their professors. I meet with the CEO of St. Jude's and I said, I heard that you have millions of dollars to improve the aesthetics um, at your hospital. And I only want just a little bit. In fact, what I would like you to do is pay for our program for our kids to build and create 
um, mosaics uh, in your hospital. And so when I first told him, he was like, so they're going to build hands. Great. Um, that's not quite what we had in mind. And I said, no, no, we're working with professionals. Our kids have been trained to do this. And I said, I, when, I promise you, when you're done, you won't notice the difference that 11-year-olds made this. Wow. And so um, if you go into the entryway into St. Jude's, you'll see that mosaic. Um, and that was all made um, by those students. Um, they have, it was such a success that every year they fund a project, and I think we've done four or five projects, giant mosaics um, as a result of it. And that's also because um, of the people in our community, and you build relationships, and Zoot mentioned that. Uh, Zoot was like my go-to, like, hey, I got this idea, and like, he's super creative, and like, I'm like, I want to hang out with Zoot because Zoot inspires me. And so if I want to be innovative and I want to innovate a district, I need to surround myself with innovative people that are always pushing me. Oh, did you think of this? Did you think of that? So innovation is also about internal organization, but who are the people you hang out outside the organization? Who inspires you? Who kind of pushes you and says, you know, I, I never even thought of that. I personalize it. We, we, we have our inspiration actually from video games. So my son, David, uh, I have four girls. They're straight A's. They, they actually did their homework. They actually did pick up after themselves. And then I had two boys. And, um, and while they made it through high school, um, it, you know, it was like, it was little touch and go. Um, but the one thing I noticed is that my son loved video games. And he could talk hours about it. Um, and he would read about video games. And he would be calling people about resources and things that I didn't really understand. And he, and I thought, what is it that he finds so compelling about, about a video game and so not compelling about school? And one of my favorite things he said is, I, I said, why aren't you doing your homework? Because of course, he was on plan with his teachers and email me. He was like, how did you know? Um, your teacher emailed me. Um, and, he said, and I said, you got to get your homework in. And he said, I, it's, there's really no point. He said, Dad decides. I don't do any of my homework. I get all A's, and I can still pull off a C plus. So I'm like, um, that's not the bar. <laughs> but he did say, you know what? Does it matter anyways? Nobody really pays attention to the homework. Why, why am I doing this? And so I did at least make me think, well, what's different about a video game than Homer, per se? Well, he actually got feedback. He actually knows that he's doing better. There is a sense of self-efficacy. If you fail, you get another time, and you learn. And so those are the things that we try to build into I personalize. And so it wasn't a video game, per se. It was actually a combination of like, the regular classroom, along with some added elements of immediate feedback, uh, gaming, they got to level up. Um, my favorite word is respawn. So in school, there's no, unfortunately, it's not really respawning. You, you mess up, you don't do well in the test, you're failed, you're done. Um, and in fact, sometimes our high schools don't do a good job of this because it's March, the kid has no, no chance to pass the class. And they're like, yep, you can't do anything. And then the next three months, I promise you, that teacher pays um, in so many different ways because it doesn't matter anymore. So we try to create this idea of responding in a video game. 
if you try and cross a bridge, you get blown up, you go back to the bridge, you try again, and you try to figure it out. So that idea that you, if you meet failure and you haven't figured it out, then you have another chance to try to figure that out. So we built in, again, XP points and all those sorts of things. And ultimately, um, this was my, we saw pictures of this all the time. This picture happened at school after learning um, something related to language arts. That's not usually what people look like <laughs> learning language arts. So that kind of sense of empowerment. And that's, so I personalized, kind of combined those things. It was standards-based. It was built, uh, built on reading and writing standards. Can, can I interject something? Yeah. So what Dr. Bob figured out to do, and I, he hasn't maybe fully articulated, is that he figured out a way to, for kids to create their own avatars. And as they do well in real life assignments, they get to beef up their avatars and they become superheroes. And I, I wish you would talk a little bit more about what you did because it's very innovative. Well, we'll, well, I have another piece I'll add in there. Um, so some of these things, you know, we've had a lot of success in, in the areas of innovation in particular. Um, we were uh, inducted into the League of Innovative Schools um, set up by Congress. 102 of the most innovative school districts in the entire um, country are identified, and they participate in um, this league, and they're celebrated, and we're also having chances to be inspired by each other. Um, and the, the National School Board Association rated us like top 10 in the nation the last three years. So innovation has been something that's a part of our DNA, actually, for a long, for a long time. This is probably my favorite, though, and that is um, top workplaces in Orange County, um, and because I think it underlies what we're trying to do. You want to create an innovation, culture of innovation? It's really about, it's about our community, it's about our staff, it's about each other. And, um, and, and so that piece, for me, is probably the most important, because it's not an award to the district, it's, the, it's really an award to our staff, to our community. One more piece that kind of, like, again, we talk about good communities. So unions. So unions are often bashed. Unions, um, and sometimes administration is bashed. And then they play this game. No, you're bad. No, you're bad. No, you're both bad. And then everybody hates both of us. So um, this, we've really worked with our, our associations. We have a pretty sophisticated thing called um, partnerships with administration labor. Um, once a month or once a year, we have a symposium. We play together. We do things together. We build mosaics together. So little, little fine arts. Um, those uh, mosaics actually go around our district. Um, and we have monthly and regular meetings about uh, with our, our partners. And we consider them partners. And we have a motto: Don't let each other fail. And and actually, that's the same motto that we have among our staff. We want to let each other fail, whatever we need to do to support. I was just going to touch on culture code because um, it was one that we did in, in management retreat. How do you create a culture that creates this great sense of safety and a great sense of belongingness and a sense of um, where innovation can take place? And so he looked at innovative uh, organizations, Daniel Coyle, and as a part of it, he looked at you know, what, were, what was the context that made innovation take place. But he starts with a story. Anybody hear of the Christmas truce? Christmas, Christmas truce occurred in World War I. Yeah. And in World War I, um, there were trenches and trench warfare. And so literally the Germans were on one side 
And in this particular case, it was the bridge on the other side. In some cases, they're as, far, as close as 30 feet. So trenches, and we're in the, in the trenches, they're in there for months. So imagine month after month being in the trenches, um, and in some cases, they flooded. Um, they got frostbite, gangrene. Um, it's a horrible, horrible place. And um, the story is, though, at the time, I guess the Pope had asked, well, there should be a Christmas truce. And basically, all sides said there will be no truce. And if you see something, um, it's really a trick, and so just shoot them. And so, um, but what was interesting is, and I'll work backwards from the end, um, one German soldier, who was an officer, said to the British, I'm coming out of the trench. My life is in your hands. And he gets up and walks over, and the British officer got up and walked over. And that began a series where the officers moved to the center, and they began singing Christmas carols. They began to play games for, this was over a pro, uh, proactive period of time, in some ways weeks. They ate together, and suddenly things changed. How did that happen? Because to work backwards, they said there were some things that led up to it. They were there, and so began, they began to afford each other little, little benefits, little truces. This one's my favorite. When you went to the restroom, they didn't shoot at you. I, I think that was good. <laughs> <laughs> I think it makes things better. Um, the second thing is actually when they, when they were eating, so, or supply lines. And so these little truces began to happen. And then as, as Christmas started to approach, there would be times in the evening where each side would begin to sing. And they would sing their own Christmas carols. But what happened is it started to be this volley back and forth between the two sides. They almost began to like outdo each other like guys like to do. I can spit further than you. I can sing louder than you, all those sorts of things. And pretty soon, they began that volley of back and forth began, they began to sing together um, over a period of weeks. And then that led to one officer being vulnerable enough to say, my life is in your hands. And when we think of our organizations, do we create the space for people to be vulnerable? And in that vulnerability comes true strength. So this is my team. We play together all the time. So we're going to be playing with this concept of safety, play, vulnerability, and purpose. The question is, how is it possible to lead with purpose and direction and be open to others? How do you open to your staff with at the same time saying, this is where we're going? We want to be strong. We want to be the rock for our staff. We want to be the rock for each other. But one thing we find out that in really good organizations, it's also okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to say, I'm the leader of something. I, if we're trying to really innovate, if we are trying to innovate, it means I don't know how to do it. Because then that's not innovation. I'm just doing something else, somebody else is always done. True innovation means I know kind of where I'm going. I want to go here, but how I get there, I need you. I need to be vulnerable with you. I need to be open to you. And guess what? And as leaders, it's hard for us sometimes to be vulnerable. We're supposed to be, we're the one who knows. We're the one that's the expert. 
So how do, how do we do that? How do you create a sense of safety? So in the book, um, Culture Code, they talk about the great organizations create a sense of safety. But how about this? How do you create a sense of safety with high expectations? How do you not only make sure, hold people up to this bar of being effective, but also say, our, our core values have to align. And in fact, I had to do this in front of our management group. We have pretty high expectations in Fullerton. In fact, I mean, I've let um, administrators go over, and people, my staff knows that. So I give them this book, right? Culture Code. We're going to read this together. It's a part of our management retreat. And, um, I, and I start to hear, hmm, safety. Didn't Dr. Bob get rid of somebody last year? And so there's this piece of, well, how do you feel safe? And yet, um, this sense of, we, we, we do have expectations. We do have a sense of purpose. And so, um, we had uh, <laughs> the bad apples, right? So, the, the book talk calls them bad apples. So I, I, I use that. First of all, I think there's, I actually don't think there are bad apples. The book refers to this idea that, that good organizations also say, this person might not share my value. Um, and so they gave an example of um, this coach of the Knicks, uh, Coach Pop. And Coach Pop is the most desired basketball manager at one time um, to play for in, in the NBA. And yet he got rid of people, good people. And, and yet, um, there was a time they had a horrible loss. And after the loss, everybody thought happened that Coach Pop was going to get on him. And they come into there and he says, we're going to dinner. And so instead of having um, that, uh, I guess, special talk, um, they went to dinner. And what he did is try to reestablish that sense of safety. So this is our the piece. I go to the management and I begin to hear this. And I said, you know, I need to address it. And so to talk about this piece. As we look at high expectations and we look at safety, there is a paradox. There is an irony. And then I said to our group, and maybe there's even a hypocrisy to it. And so what I said to them and what I say to you is, that's something, how do we do that? And that is important. We have to make sure people feel safe and a sense of community. And yet at the same time, this is what we're about. And I think there is a way to do that. Um, and I think you, we can cultivate um, that, sense, that sense of belonging and that sense of, of culture. There's something um, Daniel Coyle talks about in his book. He says, it's called the magic feedback loop. He says, someone's new in your organization, and you tell them, we want you here. We want you to be part of our organization. And we have high expectations. And we know you can do it. We brought you in because we believe in you. And he said there's something, um, and there was a couple studies that he draws on, that that feedback loop, you're a part of us. We see you in our future, and these are our expectations, and we know you can do it. It's a belief, a belief in each person. But it also starts with our why. And for those of you 
What is your why? And for everybody here, it's a different why for your organization. What is your why? And if you're clear about that, that kind of helps to answer the questions about high expectation. For us, it's our kids. For us, I, I want him and him and her and her um, to realize the thing that makes them special. And in fact, this is what we tell our, um, our kids and we tell our teachers and we tell everyone. All children, they are the hero of their own story. And our job is to help them tell their story. And the way they tell their story is to find the thing in them that makes them unique and special and to find their special place on this earth. And I'll say this to all of you and I say it to my staff. I believe there is something in every one of us. We're here on this earth because there is something that makes us unique that our world will be better because of it. And if we don't find that special thing in each one of our children, that our world will miss out on the thing that they were brought here to transform um, this world. And I believe that about all of you. Amen. And I believe that about our staff. And so for how do you, this irony, this paradox, maybe this hypocrisy, is that this is so important that we're going to hold each other accountable for this. That this is what we're about. And you'll hear sometimes, you'll hear unions say, our job isn't to take care of the kids. Our job is to look out for each other. And if you talk to our union, our president, they'll say, we're here to take care of kids. And so that piece of when you say the message, you want to create innovation, how do you be open and have a sense of purpose? How do you do that? You know your why. You know why you're there. You message that. You articulate that over and over and over again. But you say, but I need you because you have something so special and so unique that this world, our district, our community, if we don't find the thing that you have that will benefit these kids, our district misses out. And so it's open, but it is purposeful. And that's part of our paradox. Um, a little bit more about um, I personalize. So by the way, the, fu the fundamental piece, yes, is the video game. Yes, it's leveling up. But we always said it's, the purpose of I personalize was to have every child find their, we call them superpowers. What's their superpower? And that's not something, that's not a game we're playing just as a game. But we believe that. We believe they have something. And so you'll see this. Um, they got to dress up. That was a big part of it. Kids love to dress up. I actually think adults, most of us, like to dress up occasionally. <laughs> um, and as you can see, as they mastered standards, they would move up. They got badging. So the badging, some of it was virtual. But they had these lanyards. And every time they learned skills, they mastered something, um, they got badges. We had a whole series of characters. So we had... Um, a general indifference, that was the bad guy. Um, and so, and then these were different characters. Um, and so the kids, they had to save uh, in characters or work with our heroes using their superpower. And so I personalized was about this idea that yes, it was a fictional world that they were participating and they were getting to dress up. 
but it was also nonfiction because they were supposed to add their special gift to be able to uh, make changes to impact their community. And I'll show, share a couple of the things that we did in iPersonalize. This one is at the muck. This was so cool. This was a zoo, um, a, a little project that we put together called the Muon Lantern. And um, uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, was actually um, kidnapped and it was up to our kids to save Benjamin Franklin by learning these different things. And then the culminating project was they went to the Muckenthaler, and as a part of that, they had different clues that they had to find um, to try to find the Muon Lantern to rescue Benjamin Franklin. And so, just for added fun, Zoo had told me, you know, there's probably not true, but a ghost story or two around the Muckenthaler. So I had asked Zoop to share one of those, and where the uh, the Muon Lantern is hidden was actually down a staircase in a dark place uh, in the muck, hidden kind of in a closet. And what was was amazing was a, I'm not sure who, maybe it was the teacher, maybe it wasn't, but she was going towards it, and someone jumped out, and she just about jumped out of her skin. Um, but you can see how much I think she enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, when I first met him, like I just met this guy, right? Came and spoke at a Rotary Club. I met him. I told him what we were doing. He was immediately interested in STEAM. And we had lunch together. And he starts, I just met this guy. We're having lunch. And he goes, so I got this idea about Ben Franklin time traveling with these muon particles that help them time travel. And the British are trying to get it to redo this, the uh, Revolutionary War. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> So to set up the that I personalized for the for kids who had these experiences, um, we we did the professional development with the teachers, but if we're gonna ask kids to say, hey, play is going to be part of your learning. We need to give our, our teachers an experience. And so as part of professional development, so imagine coming just like today, and now as part of it, we're going to say, okay, um, we're going to take a full break, and we're going to be having turning of ladder ball and cornhole. Anybody ever play ladder ball or cornhole? At our house, it's a staple. Uh, we have it in the backyard. You can even do it with a drink in your hand. Um, that's left or right-handed. Um, and so, but it's one of the things we've done. This was actually, we brought out a, uh, a video game truck. And so not everything has to be competitive. This was actually a dance. I don't know where you might follow the dance thing or whatever it is. And so we wanted to give experiences that play is okay. And in fact, research says play builds trust that actually um, it's 20% when, when people play together, after playing together, doing their real job, they're 20% more effective. They actually trust each other more, they're more vulnerable with each other, and the things that they did while they played transfer over. Um, but you might say, well, you're a school district. You work with children, I work with adults. So I got to see C-spine 
Okay, my one 28-year-old daughter who's been dating the guy for seven years. They live together. They both have degrees. He's a mechanical engineer. She's a teacher. I'm like, guys, like, come on. Like, to the altar. To the altar. Um, so finally, finally, he asked for my daughter's hand. It's physical. So the day finally did arrive. So next year, um, of course, the second daughter, seriously, the, um, the gentleman dusted. He asked a week later, and I thought, okay, what a coincidence. <laughs> so C-spine is where my future son-in-law works. C-spine is crazy, high-tech, all engineers, doctors, physicians, researchers, right? So what they do, first of all, like it's like from another world. I mean, it's something you see out of Star Trek. So people that lose vertebrae and spine um, and have damage because of cancer, they literally merge, uh, it's like almost cyborg stuff, but um, they do uh, the, the metal design with the bone, and so people that can't walk suddenly can walk. And they have this, we went on a tour, There's, we go into this place, and it looks like bone soup. It's not, that's not what they called it, but that's what we called it, bone soup. They're boiling this stuff, and you got bone stuff in there, and, and I said to my um, uh, future son-in-law, um, I said, what are, what are you doing? He's, why are you here? Because he's a mechanical engineer. He says, well, my job is to take the bone soup. And what happens is there will be a spot in the spine, and there's a hole because of a, something that happened. He says, and I have to create the tool that will basically inject the bone soup or the, um, into that, and then it's supposed to expand. And it used to take, they said it would take four or five hours, and they said, you know, surgeons don't want to wait four or five hours, and so we're going to go ahead and put, uh, it needs to happen all within like 10 minutes. So he's working with physicians, he's working um, uh, with other mechanical engineers and uh, to all make this happen. So what's their environment like? Well, by the way, you go to the break room, um, a whole bunch of uh, folks, some of my age even, all the way down, there, there's uh, foosball, there's pool tables, there's ping pong. So all of that's going on. Um, once a week, they all play together. They have a choice of different sports. They play on teams together at lunch. They literally take an hour and a half out of the day, promoted by the company, to play together. They play sports together. Um, this one we can't do in the district, but I do love it. Uh, once a month, um, basically on a Friday, about two o'clock, well before a regular school day ends, um, company brings in, there's food, there's drink, there's shots, that, you know, no. <laughs> there is beer, there is beer and wine, they bring that in. They do kind of crazy fun stuff too. He gets secret emails. Uh, emails kind of like what I told you that our kids did. Um, show up here, you get there, and there's a clue. And all of a sudden, there's other people all at the same time. Now, mind you, these are people with PhDs doing serious work. And they show up, and all of a sudden, it says, okay, they have to figure out, think, breakout room, um, if you're familiar with that. And then they go to the next place, and when they end up a place, there's beer involved again. There's beer and pizza at the end, you know, where, where they find. 
So, and then they have some questions, and then there's some discussion that they do. So they built in fun and play as part of their corporate culture, not because they're just really nice company, however it does sound like a fun company to work for, but because they're more innovative, they're more productive. They're doing things right now that nobody else in the world is doing. Wow. And so this piece of this environment of fun and play and innovation all kind of feed together. So just that I cited a couple studies. Um, here's my favorite, though. This is actually from the Daniel Coyle book. So they have a group of MBAs, attorneys, CEOs, and kindergarten children. And they're told to build a tower of marshmallows and spaghetti. And so who wins? Who builds the tallest tower in the shortest period of time? Kindergarten kids. Kindergarten kids. <laughs> because guess what? They're playing. They're, they're, there's a name to them. And so suddenly, in fact, I, this part I like, 26 inches um, versus, uh, let's see, was, that, was it six, uh, 10? 10 inches versus 10 and 15 inches. CEO's got 22. I guess that's not too bad. Um, 15 inches for the lawyers. I think the business students were only 10. So the, the kids, <laughs> our kindergarten kids doubled the size in the same amount of time. Here's, though, what was interesting. Um, they're not competing for status. So the research has said that we often compete for status. They're just playing. They're shoulder to shoulder. If you've ever seen little kids, they're in your face, they're in their space, they're like doing it. That doesn't work, short verse. So that element of play produces more, is more effective um, than the other groups kind of who's, who's more important, who should speak first, who should speak second, <laughs> all of those sorts of things. Wow. So we play with the concept that if we want kids to have superpowers, if we want them to recognize what's great in them, well, the adults should play too. Play with the concept. Play with this idea that not only do our kids have things that make them unique, but so do all our teachers, and so do all our principals, and so do every one of us. And so let's play with that. What's your superpower as a teacher? What's your superpower um, leading the boys club? What's your superpower um, leading a, a, a performing arts school? And what, is the, what are those special powers that each one of your staff brings? And how do you recognize it and promote that and see the value? Because if you do that, cool, innovative stuff happens. Um, and as a result, our teachers did begin to see that they did have strengths that made them unique. And they then, when they are on a team, and I, you have something special, and you have something special, and you have something special, and you have something special, well, that means all of us together, shoulder by shoulder, when we're working on a project, we all need to be adding something. We celebrate it together. We're really good at celebrating together. Not quite as good as C-Spawning. There are no shots, um, but there's other cool stuff that we've done. Um, we do acknowledge, uh, I, I'm not this person, but there's somebody who can, he's cool, he can rap, he's got his own band, and he can mix music. And so he's up there, he's always leading a group of other people that are talented, they're always singing, they're always writing a new song, and then we're like, well, we gotta play it. And so it's always, I mean, karaoke, I mean, all of those things, um, that's his talent. Um, and so it's like, 
try and find ways to do that. We eat a lot together, um, so we're all foodies. We all love good food. Um, most of us really like to cook. I love to cook, um, and so people come in and we have great, uh, great lunches, great breakfast. Um, I have this one in my office. She makes the best salsa in the whole world. Um, I had another one who taught me how to make tamales. I made tamales at my house with my six children. It was awesome. They weren't quite sure why we were making tamales, but like, we got to do this. I even was told by three other ladies in the office that that person didn't know how to make the tamales right, and I needed to do their <laughs> so, so eating is a big part. I split burgers. I do carne asada. I'm also a fisherman. I we bring the fish back, and we'll do that. If they don't like fish, they get hot dogs. We do fish tacos. So we're always doing those sorts of things. Um, obviously, not every day and every moment, but those are the things we work in. We work those things in. Successes and failures. So the kids are supposed to have to write uh, a narrative as part of what they do. Um, it's one of the state standards. They have to write narratives. So instead of just writing narratives, what we said is, okay, I know I'm dating myself, but someone can help me. Remember uh, Michael Landon, and he played the angel? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and he would go into like families, and like there'd be problems, and he was the angel, and, and I think he had a, his wing was broken, or halo was broken, and he had to get back on the good side. And so um, what would happen is he'd go into this situation, and he'd have to try to make things better with the family. And so what we did is we said to the kids, well, you're story angels. What if we sent you into um, uh, our convalescent homes? And what if we interviewed some of our seniors and we asked them to share a story that their grandparents, their children, or their grandchildren don't know about them? Something that was meaningful to them, something powerful. And then we videotaped them doing that. The kids did that. We, teachers didn't. Kids videotaped. Kids did the interview questions. Kids wrote the narratives. Kids aggregated it. Um, they had film festivals of all the, all the stories. And as a part of the stories then, um, we invited the, the uh, seniors, their grandchildren, and their children to the event. And so they got to hear stories that had never been told to them. Um, and suddenly, our kids, they had a place. They were story angels making a difference for families. And so that sort of thing, we did all the time. That sort of thing, I personalized, did really, really well. What we didn't do well at was we, it's hard to compete with real video games. And we tried. We had some folks work with the animations and the graphics and the music. And we actually had teachers that actually knew some of that doing that. We never were able to make it real enough for basically, fourth grade was our magic sweet spot. Third, fourth grade, fine. Fifth grade, they're like, oh no, that does not like look like World of Warcraft at all. So that part, I will say, was an epic failure. Um, and so we tried it, we actually ended up moving away from that because we, the kids just were like, you are trying to do something? Like, this doesn't jive. So, um, but what we did do, so we went through an iterative process on I personalize. 
And um, there, we did focus groups at time and time again. I personally did 30 or 40 of them over about a five-year period. I did them with, the, with parents, I did them with teachers, I did them with kids, and then our team did them with parents, teachers, and kids. And it, it's big. Children say it just the way they're thinking it. And so I remember one time we did, I'm in the focus group. I tell kids, I always say this, and by the way, it's true for all of us. There's a piece of research called phenomenology. And phenomenology is this idea in research that each of you are an expert on your own experience. And so I always say that with the kids. I'll say, well, who's the expert on you, on your experience? They'll usually say, well, mom, dad, mom's the expert on everything. <laughs> dad, you're the expert with your teacher. And I always say, no, it's you. You know your experience best. You're the expert. So then I say, when we do this focus group, tell me about your experience. What was it like? What did you think? But also kids know if you're not being truthful. So if you say, oh, I won, I want you to tell me your experience, and then you start going, well, it wasn't so bad, was it? They'll shut down. So my favorite part is, we had done really well with the standards. Our achievement went up as a result of this unit of study. I'm sitting with the kids. And I said, tell me how we did on the game part. Did it feel like a game? And the kid says, he looks at me in the fourth grade, he says, it hurts my heart that you call this a game. <laughs> okay, I guess we're going to work on this some more. And so we, 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 we worked on it again and again and again. We got pretty good at the game part. We got really good at that part. Kids leveling up and experiencing their avatar. We never really did get game. <laughs> And the, video, the actual video game part, that, that we just never got good at. So we punted on that. Um, but the things that we did learn, we incorporated in those things. The lesson on innovation, though, is go towards the discomfort. I'm not saying children are discomfort, but the, the, what it is, <laughs> is sometimes what they tell us. And that's not just true of kids. You, what's your workplace like? Um, I thought it was really good about three years ago, and it was good at our schools. I'm looking at survey results from office, district office staff about other district office staff. It was low. So I thought, okay, let's do it. Let's pull them all in. I went through every department, every division, our whole team, our cabinet team sat in the room, and we said, tell us. You're an expert on your experience. Tell me about your experience. And we worked on it, and we worked on it. And by the way, if you do a focus group and you say, tell me your experience, and they tell you, guess what, the bathroom is appalling here. It's like a little dark cave that you send us in. And I'm just making that up. No. <laughs> and you don't do something about it, that's worse than asking. So if there is something that you ask, and we ask and say, and some people ask, I mean, someone said a three-story parking face, and I said, I can't do that, so and I'm always really up front, and I don't have an extra mill. Well, actually, I think a parking structure might be fine. Something like that a lot. But the things that I can control, we do it. We create a punch list, and we literally go through the punch list. So we do that, and at the end, it was kind of cool. We didn't ask for it. Somebody from district office, 
Um, one of our classified staff nominated us for Orange County Top Workplace. There was a giant survey of all our departments, and, and we won. And what was great about that was a year before, it wasn't very good in the district office. And so that's the other thing. There is no moment where you get to go, we have arrived. There is no moment. It just, every time you see discomfort, every time you see that it's not good, you go towards it. And you ask. And you create a safe environment for them to tell you. And if you do that, you can do anything. Um, and even maybe a three-story parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so in some cases, I personalize some elements did burn. Some of it, we're not doing anymore. The video game piece, the actual part where we're doing the characters of the stories and that, that animation piece, it's gone. And there was, it was hard. I didn't want to let that go. Um, but um, what we did find out that we could do, we created, we have kind of a new name called Pathfinder. But it's not that new because it's still based on this. And these are our kids. And now our Pathfinder creates dream catchers. Kids that all have special superpowers. Things that make them unique and special. And our program is meant back to our purpose. is to find the hero in each one of them and help our children write this hero story for each of them. And so in some, in some cases, what dies and burns rises up back up, just like the phoenix, and back to um, remind you back of what your purpose is. So thank you, everybody. And I'm wow. Thank you for listening to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco. 501c3BS is sponsored by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zoofalasco.com, and my book, The First Hundred Days on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian coro group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.